right. Well, good morning. It's, uh, yeah, it's really good to be with you. I just, I just realized that we have the same shirt on. Yeah, and that's not, yeah, that may be like a new strategy that maybe I'll start practicing of like wearing a matching shirt of the pastor that I'm going to visit. So anyway, so good to be with you. Thank you for opening your, um, your hearts, um, for opening uh, your, your church, your pulpit to, uh, yeah, to the work that we're doing. We, um, yeah, we really, we really appreciate it deeply. You know, there's, um, there's a, a saying from way back by a civil rights leader by the name of W.E.B. Du Bois who made this statement. He said, there is but one coward on earth, and that is the coward who dare not know. And I think that when it comes to really painful and dark issues, there's a part of us that just wants to hide from that stuff. When things get too horrific or the stories get too crazy, there's a part of us that we just want to go the other way. I want to bury my head in the sand. I often refer to myself as the dinner guest from hell, um, in that oftentimes when I'm asked, well, some of you found that out last night, um, when I'm I'm asked to go to dinner or something, people haven't met me before and everything, somewhere along the line, the conversation will turn to, so what is it that you do? And it's just like you're thinking, oh man, you don't you don't want to know um, the stuff that, uh, that I do or what I'm involved. Or even like on long flights, plane trips to Bangkok, Thailand, or whatever, you're there for 14, 12, 14 hours on a plane. Somewhere along the line, a conversation will start taking place. And usually it's along the lines of like, so are you going to Bangkok on, uh, for pleasure or for business? Well, for business. Really, what is it that you do? And then I've had people like in tears uh, sitting next to me. I've actually had people write checks also on airplanes. So who knows how, what, what that turns out to be. But there is a part of us that when we hear really dark things, painful things, we just want to look away. And so I love when you hear W.E.B. Dubois make this statement. That, that's cowardice. It takes courage to know. So thank you for being a people who are making um, this posture toward we want to know. We don't want to be um, protected from this. We don't want to hide from this. We actually do want to know. But then taking it even further than that, um, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Yehuda Bauer who in referring to the Holocaust, he made this statement. He says, I I suggest that we add three new commandments to the existing ten. And these three commandments look like this. Thou shalt not be a victim. Secondly, thou shalt not be a perpetrator. And he said, thirdly, which is the most important of all, is thou shalt never, ever be a bystander. And so I don't think it's enough just to have the courage to say, I want to know, but then taking it to a deeper level saying, now I'm required in some way to do something about it. I refuse to sit back and and not do anything about it. So thank you for being a church that is having the courage to say, we want to know, but then going even further than that, saying we refuse to be bystanders. And one of the things that I love with going and speaking, and I speak in a lot of different venues, um, I love coming and speaking um, with communities of faith. Um, because there's already a posture of leaning forward. There's already this sense of moving toward um, being a people of compassion. And historically, it has always been people of faith that have led the way when it comes to what you just heard Micah the prophet say is required of us, which is doing justice. You know, I was just talking, um, uh, Joanna from uh, the uh, Freedom Church Alliances here uh, this morning, and it's the same kind of thing of connecting 
churches and people of faith and the recognition that we have a responsibility um, as people of faith to not just know but to actually do something about it. That, those words, this is what God requires of you, to do justice. He doesn't say to talk about it, to write a book about it, or to listen to sermons about it. The word do there insinuates action. So thank you for being people um, who desire and, and then take, take action. Um, there are three things that we usually encourage people. Oftentimes people say, well, what can I do to get involved? Here are some three really um, basic ways that you can get involved. How many of you pray? You're the praying type. I would think most of us in, the, in this room would raise our, our, our hands for that. So if you're a praying person, we have a prayer team um, of people all over the place that are praying um, for not just our work, but specifically for this area of injustice. Um, and we have a text um, number. If you text uh, the words love146 to this number, 411247, and Tiffany, my colleague, will be in the back um, afterwards if you want that number again. It's texting love146 to 411247. You'll get a text message from us, a prayer request, maybe once a month, at tops, maybe twice a month. Usually it's an emergency type thing. This is what's going on right now. Could you begin to pray? And man, there's people all over the world that begin to pray when it comes to this specific thing. And then sometimes throughout the month, you'll get just a celebratory type text saying, man, thank you for praying. This is what happened. So you get to actually be part of celebrating some of the things that, that God is doing. So if you're the praying type, we'd love for you to become part of the Love 146 prayer team. Another obviously practical way is, is giving. We have monthly sponsors um, that basically fund our work on a monthly basis that help sustain the work. We would be just as honored if you spend your money right here in Houston supporting uh, some of the work toward recovery here in Houston. In fact, when we, um, when we saw what was happening, and it was interesting from the outside looking in and seeing what was happening here in Houston and how neighbors were helping neighbors and all of the, all of the things that have been happening here, um, we actually felt really awkward about still coming back to Houston. Several of our events that had been planned were, were canceled and all of that. We were just like, man, we just need to allow Houston time to just recover. So, man, it's, we, again, we would be just as happy if you continue to support uh, the work that is happening here towards uh, recovery. And then the third thing is volunteer teams. We have volunteer teams all over the country um, that are doing the work of abolition. Uh, you know, when you look historically, it was small groups of people that began to gather and say, we're going to do something about this. We're going to end this. It was Quakers here in the United States during the transatlantic um, slave trade that um, began to look at and be convicted that, man, this is an offense to God and to people. Um, we're going to do something about this. And so, um, uh, yeah, so volunteer teams are the lifeblood of the organization, people that are working in their communities, doing practical uh, uh, things to uh, end the trafficking and exploitation of children. We have three volunteer teams, I believe, right here in the Houston area. If there's not one specifically right in this area where you live, we'd love for you to start one. So if you're interested in being part of uh, one of our volunteer teams, again, you can talk to myself or Tiffany afterwards. We'd be happy to, uh, to talk with you about that. So Love 146, our vision is the end of trafficking and exploitation of children, nothing less. Um, we're doing that through both survivor care work um, as well as prevention work. For years, we were just caring for the survivors, um, which is the mercy aspect of, 
of what Micah the prophet was talking about that God requires of us. But recognizing that we're not going to stop this from happening just by caring for the survivors of injustice. We actually have to be preventing it from happening. And so we developed our prevention programs. Um, we're, we're working in Southeast Asia, specifically in the Philippines. We have a home for girls and a home for boys because this is something that doesn't just happen to girls. It also happens uh, to boys. Um, and then we, uh, we also are doing survivor care in the UK and in the United States. And then we also launch prevention programs here uh, in the United States. In fact, most of them being right here in Houston, um, enabling us to reach almost 20,000 uh, kids with our prevention program since we uh, began. So you guys are a part of that. So thank you for, uh, for being a part of that. We're actually getting ready to, to launch into Africa as well in, in our expansion. Um, the International Labor Organization estimates that there are between, the, the most recent actually was 40 million people um, alive on the planet today that are still enslaved. If you're like me, I was given the impression that slavery ended with something that we call the Emancipation Proclamation. But the reality is slavery still exists today in some of its worst imaginable, imaginable forms, and most of the victims of slavery are the vulnerable. The most vulnerable amongst us are often uh, children. And so that's what we're working to stop, and that's what you're a part of in partnering with our work. So thank you for that. If you want to know more about the details of some of the things that we're doing as an organization that you're a part of, again, please feel free to talk to myself um, or Tiffany after the, the service. But this morning, what I wanted to share a little bit about is, um, is hope. And this has been something that's been stirring in me for, for some time. Uh, a, a little over a year ago, I was with a good friend of mine. We celebrate our birthdays um, together, and that his birthday is the day before mine. We're both about the same age. And so every year we get together and we have dinner together, and um, uh, yeah, we just sort of reflect. And this particular year, I was sitting there with my friend Andrew, and as we're... As we're um, we're, we're talking, um, I, I, I had to read the menu, and so I had to take my, my, my special reading glasses out, because this is what happens when you start to get a little older, you need these to read a menu. And so he's laughing at me as I'm taking my glasses and I'm trying to, uh, trying to read the menu, um, and, and then the next day we start talking about, I said, man, it's not only my eyes that are going, I said, my, my hearing has, has gone as well. I've lost almost all the hearing in my right ear. In fact, if you talk with me after the service today or something, if you're on this side of me, I'm not being rude and ignoring you. I just honestly cannot hear you, okay? So I could only hear out of this ear, and it's from years and years of playing in a rock band. And, and I remember when I was growing up, my mother used to say, back then we didn't have these like fancy in-ear monitors. You see a lot of like worship bands and people using the in-ear monitors. Back then, it was just monitors like this, and I had monitors next to my head that were just blaring um, music. And so my parents, you're going to lose your hearing, you're going to lose your hearing. I did. So um, if, yeah, there's not many young people in here, but if your parents tell you that you're going to lose your hearing because your music's too loud, it's true. Believe them. Um, so I'm like, oh, my eyes, my hearing and stuff. And, I, and we, then we just realize, we start cracking up because we realize, oh my gosh, we're those guys. We're those old guys in a pub just complaining about our aches and pains about getting older. And at the same time, I was like, but man, there's something else that's happening in me that is not physical. There's something internal that's been happening in me that I'm beginning to recognize, and it is that hope is rising in me, especially in the last few years. And I can't explain it, because everything around me should be saying that I should be thinking the opposite, that hope should be diminishing. I meet people every day 
that their hope is diminishing. Despair is coming in like waves and waves, and people are giving up hope. You see it in the news. You see it in the media. People are giving up hope, and, and somehow or another, just the opposite is happening to me. And in, what's crazy is not only with what's happening in the world, but with the issue that we deal with. Our heads are buried in some of the darkest stories imaginable day in and day out, and yet somehow hope is rising. If you meet anybody in the context of Love 146, you'll meet hopeful people. You'll meet Tiffany. Um, my colleague Jennifer is here, and her husband Matthew. You, you, there's this hope thing that resonates in us. What is that? And I saw, I've, I've been like, man, trying to figure out where is that coming from? Because if I could bottle it <laughs> or write a book about it, I can become really wealthy because this is unusual. And so I've been on this quest to try to figure out what is this hope, where does it come from, and how, does, how is it sustained? And so two things, two areas of hope that we find that we deal with as an organization is the first is what I call a hope deferred, a hope that seems to be put off or postponed. Again, we have a very audacious vision is that it's the end of child trafficking and exploitation. Well, it hasn't ended yet. And so there's a sense of the thing that we long for, the thing that we ache for is not coming to pass. Can you relate to that? in your own life. There's all, most of us in this room can relate to a sense of waiting for something, longing for something that we, we ache for to see to come to pass, not happening, and that pain and that heartbreak that is in that place. In fact, the psalmist in Psalm 40, uh, verse 1, he says this, he says, I waited and waited and waited for God. I love this passage because he could have just as easily just wrote it one time, I waited for God. You know, sometimes it's just that flip, and yeah, I, I waited for God, and then he came through. But you could, can you feel the longing in the psalmist here, this ache? He doesn't just say, I waited. He says, I waited, and I waited, and I waited. There is this ache. There is this longing, for waiting and longing for something that is not happening. It's not being fulfilled. It's not taking uh, place. And in Proverbs 13, verse 12, um, the, the writer says this, hope deferred. This is the description of that kind of waiting and what happens during that waiting. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. We love the last part of that verse, a longing fulfilled is a tree of life, but that first part is such a harsh reality. In that place of waiting and waiting and waiting, oftentimes we become heart sick. And we've recognized this even in our own lives, myself and my family. We've, uh, we were sharing last night with some of the folks here that um, we've been in, uh, anybody that's ever been in the adoption world and that you've adopted uh, children, you get this waiting piece, this, this hope deferred thing. And uh, I have six kids, soon to be seven, our four youngest um, uh, we've adopted. And sometimes that adoption process has lasted a long time, month after month of waiting and waiting, paperwork, paperwork, roadblocks and, and hoops to jump through and waiting and waiting and waiting. And there have been times that my wife and I have actually been in tears of heart sickness of this longing, of this ache to bring this child home into our family um, where, where they would have a family for, forever and be loved within the context of a family. And that waiting has made us heart sick. In fact, we're in um, that process right now uh, with, with, a, with a daughter who is seven years old. We started the process when she was five. She's, she's in Vietnam. And there's this category, if you're familiar at all with adoption, there's a category of children called waiting children. 
You could go onto websites, adoption agency websites, and they'll have a category or a click button that says waiting children. And you become a waiting child for two reasons. One, that you become a waiting child because you're an older child because there aren't a lot of people lining up to adopt older children. It's why we have a foster care system in the United States of America that is just filled with children who are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. They become waiting children as they get older and older. They put into that category because they've been waiting for so long of a family for their own. And the other reason that children become waiting children is because of disabilities. Um, There aren't a lot of people that are lining up to adopt children with disabilities. What a horrific category as a human being to be placed under. Isn't it an amazing thing how we put people under, under categories? You know, when you have to put the in front of the poor, the homeless, the refugees, we have these categories, and it's dehumanizing. We're talking about image bearers of God that end up with a category placed over them called waiting children. Talk about heart sickness, and and I don't know if it's up there, but I'd like to introduce you to our soon-to-be daughter. This is um, our daughter, Tai Min. She is in Vietnam. She clicks both of those, those, those boxes. She's been in an orphanage since birth. She's a waiting child because she's an older child and because she has a disability called Down syndrome. And so she's been waiting. And, and so we've talked about how we have felt as parents waiting and the ache of the heart um, uh, uh, of hope deferred and, and this longing and this ache. But then we started thinking about what must it be like to be her? Is there a heart sickness that she deals with as she has seen other children in the orphanage have families come and bring them home and she has remained? And she's seen other children go and other children, and she continues to wait. I waited and waited and waited. This is what I'm talking about when we talk about hope deferred makes the heart sick. There's a heart sickness. We see it in the children that we work with in Love 146 oftentimes because they don't see justice happen for them. They don't see perpetrators caught and arrested and pay a penalty for what um, the crimes that they've committed against children. And oftentimes they walk around like almost with an open wound. In fact, one uh, child who was in our care said, I feel like there's a thorn in my heart that cannot be pulled out until justice happens and that this person is found and caught and punished for the crimes that he committed against me and probably committing against other children. And, the, and you can see a countenance that is a, that is a heart-sick countenance. In fact, we had two children come into our care years ago and through a series of horrific circumstances, their perpetrator was not found or caught or prosecuted. And they waited months after month for justice to take place. Month after month turned into year after year. After four years of I waited and waited and waited, their perpetrator was finally caught, was prosecuted, sentenced to 20 years to life um, in prison, and it was as if the weight of the world was lifted off these kids as we watched a hope deferred turn into, from heart sickness, turn into a tree of life as that longing being fulfilled um, for justice. So that's what I'm talking about, this hope deferred that we often deal with. So I've been on this quest on how do we keep hope alive during the waiting, not just in the waiting, but in what looks like a gathering storm of craziness that's happening in the world, right? There's, there's days that you wake up and you just feel like the world has gone mad. 
right? It's just madness everywhere. You, 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 you can't turn on the news without seeing the bodies of refugee children washing up on shores, escaping extreme violence, or, or, or in what looks like increasing violence and, and increasing um, uh, terrorism and racism and all of these isms and stuff. And it just seems like this storm. Do you get that sense? Right, that, Man, if, I, if there's ever been a time that there's that sense of like the earth groaning for redemption, we're living in it. And there's that sense of a storm. And I actually don't think that it's a gathering storm or an increasing strength of a storm. I think that it's always been like this. It's just that now we have 24-7 access to the news of it all. It's being pushed in your face with 24-7 news and every social media platform imaginable and everything. So it's always like right there, right there, right there. There's a storm. How do we keep hope alive in the midst of the storm? And I've been fascinated for years with um, especially the, the, the sea and storms at sea because I had a grandfather who was a seaman. When he was 17 years old, he went to, to work on the tall ships and spent most of his, his life um, back in the, like, the 1920s and the early 1900s on the tall ships sailing the world. And I loved listening to my grandfather's stories as a kid. I would sit at his feet and listen to his stories um, from the sea. And I was fascinated, especially by his stories of storms at sea. And I remember one story in particular that I wanted him to tell all the time. And it was when he, he, he was in charge of steering um, these ships, these tall ships. And, he, and, he, and I remember him telling a story of where there was a storm that was so bad that then back then on the tall ships, they had the big giant steering wheels like on pirate ships and everything. And for him to steer the ship, they had to tie him to a post behind him. He was literally physically tied to a post so that when the waves were crashing over the bow of the ship, um, he wouldn't be swept overboard. And he's steering the ship. And as a kid, I'm listening to the story, picturing my grandfather with these waves crashing and him tied and trying to make it through the thing. And, and so I've just been fascinated by, by that. In fact, it, it, uh, there's a little fishing village in Nova Scotia, a little tiny fishing town called um, Advocate Harbor, where my grandparents are, are, are buried. And I remember going and visiting this cemetery and recognizing that almost everybody in the cemetery is a Morris. They're all related to me. And I remember walking through the cemetery and seeing all of these, like, Captain William Morris, first mate Michael Morris, and, and my grandfather buried there. And so I've always had this, like, ooh, I come from the sea kind of, kind of thing, which I actually don't, but I have relatives that, that, that came from the sea. But I've been fascinated by, by that, that whole thing. And I've read Moby Dick and Shackleton's Voyages and, and Ernest Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea. And in my learning about the sea... I discovered an interesting type of mariner that lived in ancient Greece. And in ancient Greece, on the old ships, the sailing ships, you'd have the captain, you'd have the navigator, you'd have the first mate, the second mate, the cook, and all that. But there was another kind of person on the ship, and he was called the archegos. And the archegos on a ship was usually the strongest swimmer amongst the crew because he had one job. And this is what his job looked like, is that... During a storm, if the ship tried to get into a safe harbor and couldn't make it and ended up grounded on the rock, sometimes even within sight of land, in sight of safety, sometimes the ship couldn't make it, it would crash amongst the rocks and it would get stuck there and literally the ship would be battered by the waves and torn to pieces and the crew would perish. Well, if that happened to a ship in its attempt to get to safety, it was run aground on the rocks and began to get battered, the Archegos was called up. 
And the Archegos' job, what he would do is he would stand on the deck of the ship and they would tie a rope around his waist and then tie the other end of the rope of something on the ship and he would dive off of the ship into the madness and the insanity of the stormy sea and he would swim like crazy, having his own body battered against the rocks and everything, trying to make it to shore. And if he made it to shore, when he got on shore, he would take the rope off of himself, tie it to something solid, a tree or a big rock on the shore that created a lifeline for the rest of the crew who were cowering under the decks of the ship waiting to die to find their way to safety. Can you imagine the courage it took to be the Archegos? That the, 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 everyone else hiding under the decks of the ship, we're dying, we're going to die here, trying to get some sort of cover with, uh, underneath the decks. And the Archegos standing and facing the thing that caused terror in the rest of the crew, and not only facing it, but diving into it. That's beyond courage. You know what that is to me? It's defiance. And so the other aspect of hope that we've been learning and I've been learning to practice is what I call a defiant hope. And oftentimes the word defiance is used in a negative way, right? In fact, when coming into this school, this elementary school, I had like flashbacks of my times in elementary school. In fact, just recently I took some of my kids back to see my old elementary school in New York. And the bench outside the principal's office that I used to have to sit on very often, is still there. I'm like, Dad spent a lot of time on that bench and stuff. And my kids are like, oh, really? You know, defiance was used often. I heard it a lot growing up. You'd have teachers saying, man, you're being defiant. Or your parents saying, my parents saying, man, you're being defiant. And it was always a negative thing. I'm now taking defiance and attaching it to hope, which creates this sense of tenacity and resistance. So now when I think about defiant hope, I'm talking about when we see the storm and we see what looks like increasing violence, racism, terrorism, and, and all of these things, instead of just being like overwhelmed by it, pushing against it, and it's different than optimism. Some people have come to me and they said, Rob, you're the most optimistic person I know. And I'm like, you don't know me then. And those that know me know that I'm not an optimist by any, by any means, but I'm hopeful and I'm defiantly hopeful. Optimism sometimes has a tendency to live in denial, where it's just like denying the harshness of the reality, just saying, hey, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to work out. Everything's going to work out. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. That's the optimist. Defiant hope is recognizing the harshness and the insanity and the madness and saying and insisting, I want to be part of changing that. I believe that I can change. It's a pushing against. It, it's, it's the do thing of do justice. It's not a sitting back passively, there's an aggressiveness attached to that kind of hope. And so that's the kind of hope that I think um, we need to be, be pr practicing as followers of Jesus. The word archegos in Greek, I looked it up, means literally trailblazer, pioneer, captain, or even author. And here's the crazy thing, is I'm meeting in my travels more and more people giving into fear. You know, somebody once said, I think it was Margaret Wheatley said, um, hopelessness is not the opposite of hope. Fear is. It's fascinating. Not only people around me, but even followers of Jesus who claim the name of Christ, who are moving in fear, like Henny Penny. Remember Henny Penny? The sky is falling. The sky is falling. I meet people all the time. This is it. This is crazy. This is... I mean, wasn't it just yesterday? The end of the world was supposed to happen yesterday, I think, right? And I, and I saw Christians on social media. This is it. This is the beginning of the apocalypse. And, and all that. And it's like, oh, the sky is falling. I'm like, 
What happened to being a people of defiant hope? What happened to hope? And man, if there was ever a time that the world needed archegosses of hope, it is now. So how do we become archegosses of hope, especially in the work that we do? I think there's, there's several things, and I'll leave you with these. And this, I'm not, a, I'm not a professional in any of this stuff. This is all stuff I'm learning, and I'm in the midst of right now, and in the midst of it, trying to figure it all out. But I do recognize that there's something internal happening. First of all, I think I have an advantage in that my parents told me a story some time ago where in 1960, my parents had their first child. And then in 1961, they were debating about having another child. And my parents did not have a lot of money, so they had limited income, and they knew that it's gonna be costly to bring another child into the world. And then at the same time, they, were, they, had, they dealt with a question of, do we wanna bring a child into this world? Because if you remember from history, in 1961, we were in the middle of something called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Where again, isn't it interesting, every generation thinks this is it, this is it, this is it. My parents lived in a place of like, this is it. I mean, President Kennedy, at the time in 1961 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, encouraged Americans that if you have any spare money, I would advise you and encourage you to invest it in a bomb shelter in your yard. Build a bomb shelter in your yard. In fact, back in 1961, you could buy a bomb shelter out of the Sears Roebuck catalog. And so my parents in 1961 were dealing with some of the same things. I know people today that are debating about having a child because of, do I really want to bring a child into this world? Do I really want to bring a child into the madness and the mess that we're living in right now? My parents were asking that exact same question back in 1961. So they were dealing with that, and then they were thinking about the limited income. They were in this debate, bomb shelter or baby? Bomb shelter or baby? Bomb shelter or baby? Thank God that my parents are people of defiant hope and that they gave into hope and said, man, forget the bomb shelter. We're going to believe. We're going to bring another life into this world. That life turned out to be me. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I didn't have parents who were defiantly hopeful people. So I kind of feel like defiant hope is in my genes, man. That's, so that, I've got a head start, all right? But man, beyond that, I think it's important for us to become people of defiant hope and archegosses of hope for those that are shipwrecked or those that are living in despair, I think we can look to other archegosses of hope that are all around us. We got to do this. I'm in the Northeast. I'm watching my television. I'm watching news reports of what was happening during Harvey here and seeing people, kids, taking their little bass boats out and saving neighbors and stuff like that. I'm like, archegosses of hope right there in Houston, man. People going beyond what would normally be called for to dive into the madness and the mess instead of hiding from it. You know, when I, I, I think about archegosses of hope, I look to the MLKs of the world, the Malalas of the, uh, of the world, the Mandelas of the world. They're all around us if we would only look. Our organization was founded because of an encounter with Defiant Hope. Back literally 15 years ago this month, I was with criminal investigators um, um, who were going into a brothel undercover. They literally pose as customers going into brothels with undercover surveillance equipment on, gathering evidence. When they have enough evidence, they, they then give that evidence to local law enforcement who, if they feel the evidence is strong enough, will go in and get these kids out of these situations. And they gave us this brief educational experience or brief little training thing on how to pose as a customer. The most disturbing experience of my life to try to pretend to be the very thing that everything in me is completely and utterly repulsed by. 
And the last thing they said as we were going in on this undercover investigation, before we went into this brothel, they said, man, if you don't think you can hold it together, do not come in. We cannot risk you freaking out and destroying this investigation that is taking a long time to complete. And we were like, no worries, until we walked in there. We found ourselves standing in a room, um, looking through these glass windows um, at uh, children wearing matching red dresses, having even the dignity of a name stripped from them. They just had numbers pinned to their dresses. And on this side of the glass, I'm standing shoulder to shoulder with predators who were purchasing these kids for horrific reasons. And I remember those words of the investigator through my head, if you don't think you can hold it together, because everything in me was not holding it together. Everything in me as a man, as a father, as a human being, wanted to smash through that glass in that moment and try to get as many of those kids out of there as I could. Everything in me was trying to figure out how many of these guys in this room could we take out. And all of these thoughts are going through, and we had to refrain so this investigation can come to completion. And the thing that so took my breath away was the looks in the eyes of these kids. You know, having six kids of my own, one of the few things that I've learned about children is that if there should be anybody in the planet that has a light on in their eyes, that has that spark, that has life there, it should be a kid. And that was gone from these children. The human body has this amazing ability to shut down when there's too much pain. And these kids had been completely shut down. They were sitting there with these blank robotic stairs watching children's cartoons on television sets waiting to be purchased and abused. And they all had that blank robotic stare except for one girl. And my guess was that she was probably new to the brothel because that light had not been taken from her yet. She was the only one not looking at the children's cartoons. She was staring at us through the glass and there was still this fight, this look of defiance in her eyes, almost as if she was wanting to say, man, you may take my body, but you will never take who I am, this sense of defiance. We'll never forget that face, never forget her number. Her number was 146. And so even naming our organization, it's to remind us daily that this is not about issues and causes. This is about human beings. Image bearers have got somebody's daughter, somebody's son. And so she reminds us of this essence of defiance connected to hope. You know, when I think about defiant hope, I think about even when um, our youngest daughter, who's now 12 years old, when she was four years old, we went to Vietnam to bring her home. We were adopting her. And I wanted you to, I don't know if you could show this picture here um, of the shoes. Um, Something interesting that saw happening and that we were there for three weeks staying in a hotel in Vietnam while we were processing all of her paperwork and passport visa stuff and and, and the adoption proceedings and all of that. And at night, we would go to bed and, and when we would come into our hotel room, we would put our shoes at the door of the hotel room. Um, just so that we wouldn't be tracking stuff into the room. And, and so we would just line our shoes up. But at night, in the middle of the night, she would sneak out of bed and she would take her little shoes and she would stuff them in my shoes to make sure that I would not forget her, that she make sure that I would not leave without her. It was this act of defiance, basically planting those things. Man, I have been forgotten most of my life. I have been left behind most of my life. I will not be forgotten again. It was this sense of defiance, this defiant hope of not being left behind again. Man, my daughter became an archegos of hope and understanding for what hope looks like and as it is attached to defiance and becoming defiant hope. When I think about the children that we work with, you know, people are amazed. I brought somebody recently with me to um, one of our safe homes in the Philippines, and we played all day with the kids, playing badminton and all these kinds of things with the kids. At the end of the day, this friend of mine looks at me and she goes, I'm confused. These are just like real children. (laughs) I was 
surprise, they are real children. It's exactly what they were. She was expecting to see these kids um, completely crumpled up in, in, you know, sobbing in a corner and stuff. Instead, she count, encountered these children who are aggressively taking their childhoods back. They're not passively waiting for it to happen. You know, I remember we, uh, back uh, about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I was at a, at a celebration in one of our safe homes. We had boys there, we had some of the girls there, and at the end of the celebration, we had sort of a dance party. We love to end things with dance parties because kids love to dance, right? And so we had one of our, one of our caregivers and stuff turned on like this, stereo, this broken up stereo system and turned on, I still remember the song, Watch Me Whip, Watch Me Nay Nay was the song. <laughs> And these kids just broke into full-on dancing, and I'm undone by the scene taking place in front of me. Kids who you think shouldn't even have a reason to smile again, dancing their hearts out. What is that? It's amazing to me that children have become my teachers of what defiant hope looks like. You know, at one point, I'm sitting there, I'm so stunned by the thing that's taking place. And man, they even had like confetti cannons going, it was, it was crazy town. I'm sitting there stunned, sitting in my seat, just watching what's happening. And this five-year-old girl who's been in our care is across the dance floor, and she stops dancing because she sees me sitting in my seat. And this look comes in her eye, sort of like, this is not going to do you sitting in your seat, man. And she makes a beeline across the dance floor for me, and she gets to where I'm sitting, and she grabs me by the hands and pulls me out on the dance floor. And you guys, I whipped and I nay-nayed like there was no tomorrow, because that's what you do when the defiantly hopeful, who used to be broken, ask you to dance. Defiant hope. There are archegosses of hope all around me. Last year, I remember standing in, in our safe home in the Philippines holding the youngest child that we've ever taken into our care who had just turned one. And that should take your breath away. This is a baby who had been used by a family member for exploitation for cyber porn. And I'm holding this baby in my arms, and I'm wrecked. You know, we talk all the time. People say, Rob, you must have a really thick skin. Wow, your people at Love 146 must have really thick skin. Ask any of us. We do not have thick skin. If anything, our skin is getting thinner and thinner, as it should. I believe that we serve and love a God with thin skin that is moved with compassion over oppression and brokenness. Yeah. This one-year-old baby, I'm thinking about what has happened. Do you remember the scene from Forrest Gump when little Jenny, who's being abused by her father, runs away, and she runs out in the middle of this cornfield, and she falls down, and she prays this desperate prayer, oh God, give me wings, so I could fly far, far away from here. And that scene popped in my head as I'm holding this little baby in my arms, and I'm like, God, give her wings. And as I'm thinking that, she starts to get fussy. And one of the older girls who had been in our care for some time comes over, and she takes the baby. She relieves me of the baby that's starting to cry, and she takes the baby in her arms, and the baby stops crying, and another girl comes over, and another girl. And I watch, and I start to back away as all the kids in the safe home gather around this little baby, and I'm thinking, those are the wings. These other young ones have become archegosses of hope, 
and will be our chaoses of hope for this baby when this baby begins to grow and we'll see that there are others that have gone before her that have left this line of hope to safety and to a place of recovery and wholeness that have gone before. There are our chaoses of hope all around us if we would only open our eyes. And then in closing, we serve the ultimate archegos of hope in the person of Jesus. Acts chapter 3, verse 15, says this. This is, this is Peter. After, remember Peter and John going to the temple and the lame man was there asking for money and they were like, man, sorry, we don't have anything on us. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he's up and he's walking. And Peter always took advantage of those moments of crowds gathering at the miracle of it all. And he just goes for it. And he goes for it. Here he goes in verse 15. He says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this. Want to hear something crazy here? The word author is the Greek word archegos. The word archegos is in the Bible as a description or title for Jesus. This blew my doors off when I found this. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, again, it's Peter again. Remember Peter's shadow falling on people. People are being healed, commotion. He preaches. They're arrested. They're thrown in jail. Angel breaks them out, preaches again. Peter's going for it. In verse 31 in, chapter, in the fifth chapter, he says, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. The word prince is the word archegos. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, says this, It was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should be made the pioneer of their salvation, perfect through what he suffered. The word pioneer comes from the word archegos. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, says, Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Four places in the Bible the word archegos is used to describe Jesus. And when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, isn't this the perfect visual understanding of what God did? We have this thing that we call incarnation that we only talk about around Christmas time. But wasn't that the archegos of heaven? Not hiding under the decks of the ship, but looking at the mess and the madness and diving into it, becoming human, born as a vulnerable baby in a stable amongst the poor. It is the archegos diving into the storm. And then you have this life of Jesus, of Jesus, the archegos, going through to the point of not only going into incarnation, but another thing that we only usually talk about around Easter time, the crucifixion which was the ultimate dying and death that takes place, but didn't stop there, swimming through the grave and hell, coming out the other side in resurrection. There is this rope, if you would, that was tied around, as one old writer called the hound of heaven, that dove into our madness of sin and corruption and left this line for us toward home. The archegos of heaven. Jesus, the author of life, the trailblazer of hope, and the captain of our salvation. And captain, my captain. We have no excuse to be a people moved with fear or motivated through fear when we have the archegos of heaven. I don't think it's enough to just rest in that sense and fact that we have this archegos that has gone before us. 
but I believe that we're called to be the same for others. We're called to be a people of defiant hope who jump into the stormy seas and lead the way for others who find themselves shipwrecked. Can we stand together? You know, maybe even this morning you find yourself shipwrecked by despair, by what seems like growing hopelessness. You're overwhelmed by what seems like a strengthening storm. I want to encourage you to look to the archegoses of hope that are all around you. Look to the archegos of heaven. And there's a song that, um, I, I, man, it's, it's never made more sense to me. It's a song that I've sung, that you've sung probably since you were little that I want to close with as our prayer. And it says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, thank you for, um, yeah, sending the archegos of heaven into this madness and mess of our individual lives, into the madness and mess of humanity and all of our sin and corruption, making a way of hope for us. And Father, would you challenge us to be the same for others? In Christ's name, amen.